Sometimes when you're driving down the road all by yourself, you begin to hear a voice that tells you you need to look around, pay attention. Maybe something isn't quite right. That voice is me. It's the voice of Gord. Welcome back to another episode of Voice of Gord. Let's go trucking. Season 2, episode 2. Getting 2024 off to a good start here. Got uh, Mr. Nathan Marshall of the Blue Scholar Substack on board to investigate the nexus of meaning, work, and faith. If you haven't heard of Nathan or his Substack, maybe you've seen him in Christianity Today or Front Porch Republic. I'll share links in the show notes to all of his work. Nathan and I have a pretty wide-ranging discussion about work, meaning, faith, uh, writers we like, uh, Ivan Illich, Matthew B. Crawford. We even get into a little bit of the history of plumbing and sewage systems. Doesn't that sound neat? Uh, I think you guys will enjoy this conversation. Been uh, pretty busy around here at Voice of Gord Studios. I've been commissioned to write some essays for a think tank in D.C. That's kept me very busy. It has also limited the amount of time I can point to podcasts and other written content. But worry not, we're going to be bringing you lots of stuff here in 2024. And yeah, there's actually some pretty crazy things happening on the horizon. And I don't want to jinx them. You'll see them when they happen. Uh, As always, if you have any questions, comments, concerns, corrections, or hate mail, send them to me, gordylocks at protonmail.com. If you're listening to this on Spotify or Apple or some other podcasting platform, head on over to Substack and subscribe to my Substack, autonomoustruckers.substack.com. You'll get this podcast delivered directly to your inbox every time a new one drops, and you'll get to see all of my written content. As always, I count on you guys to spread the word around about this show. If you like it, share it with somebody, especially if they're a trucker. Word of mouth is the best marketing, and I appreciate your efforts in spreading the word, the word of gourd. Uh, If you're down under, g'day to all my friends on the Australian On The Road Radio Network. Still trying to get Yogi on here one of these days, Uh, hopefully soon. Got a full, full schedule of guests coming up. And yeah, I got a special series for the second anniversary of the Freedom Convoy. So yeah, it's gonna be gonna be fun here and action packed for the next few weeks. All right, well let's get to it, Mr. Nathan Marshall. All right, good day, everybody. Welcome to a. Another fantastic episode of Voice of Gord. Uh, I'm Gord. This is my voice. The other voice you're about to hear, you were supposed to hear a little while ago, but God was busy saving souls and he couldn't save the audio quality of our previous recording. But may I uh, present to you again, a plumber, a theologian, an Anglican, an awesome writer, and a, a, a man who is synthesizing uh, faith, meaning, and work in the pages of Christianity today, 
and now Front Porch Republic. Um, the Blue Scholar, Mr. Nathan Marshall. Welcome to the show, sir. Thank you very much, Gord. I'm happy to get a second opportunity to capture hopefully something uh, profound, but if not profound, then at least enjoyable for the pair of us. Yeah, and 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 my uh, very small group of listeners. Yeah, uh, <laughs> all fifteen of them. <laughs> uh, oh, it depends. Sometimes, some, sometimes my shows are usually at bottom. I'll get 150 downloads at minimum, and then a couple of them have breached like 1,200. So Heck yeah, yeah, usually somewhere around two or 300. Anyway, so it's nothing to sneeze at. No, they sir. could be spending their time doing anything else, literally, in the world, and they're choosing to listen to to you. So, and today, you, sir, and me, God help them. Yeah, God help us all. So, um, in our last chat, uh, we discussed all the things I just introduced you as. Um, you're a wonderful writer who I came across on Twitter, um, amongst a, bother, a bunch of other awesome writers I've discovered online. Mm. You, like myself, are, are a man of blue collar. Yes. You, you work for a living and um, something that struck me that like took me a little while to figure out because I'm kind of slow <laughs> is um, in being a plumber, you know, you are helping people get, you know, the waste and um, biological detritus and potential poisons out of their home. Mm -hmm. Much in the same way, a, a life of virtue and faith does the same thing for your soul. And I wonder mm -hmm. if you've ever thought about it in that way. Mm -hmm. Yes. Uh, <laughs> funny you should mention that uh so i'm actually thank you for the kind words on the writing it, it means a lot there it's taken it's been a long journey for me to kind of think of myself as a writer like there's still there's still moments where i'm like i don't feel like i am i feel like it's just something i do i don't know i, I don't know how to think about it but anyway I am currently writing a piece for a magazine um, for their technology issue, and it is on sewers and sort of the way that they have functioned in society. So not so much a technological history, although that factors into it a little bit, but I'm, I'm kind of looking at sewers as a manifestation of an ancient religious need for purity and the way that fun the way that they function today not only as a means by which we purge ourselves of what is dirty but also as a way that we hide the things that we don't want others to see like like if you study the the things that are found in sewers it's pretty wild and it's not all just turds like there there's a, <laughs> there's a there's a whole lot that you find uh that is it, it makes for an interesting social analysis so yeah i'm kind of exploring these ideas this is kind of top of mind for me at the moment because it is something i'm thinking about and i and i have thought a lot about um maybe not very deeply but i've thought frequently over the past couple of years about yes that sewers are this this brilliant image of how we take what is ceased to be useful for us in our bodies and may maybe it was useful for a time, but it's no longer useful to us. And so our body expels it and it, um, the way that we currently do it is we send it to a treatment plant and the treatment plant does some stuff with it and further does what our body has ceased to do. Like our, our body takes food and whatever it is that we put into it and, 
saps all the nutrients and then expels the waste. Well, that waste still has apparently some usable components to it. And that's what the water, what the sewage treatment plant does. It takes that stuff further extracts, whatever is good and uh, chemically treats it and this, that, and the other way. And ultimately can return a huge amount of it to nature or else we'll take reclaimed water and use it for other things, which is, I guess, a kind of builds on some of the, the, the things I've talked about with my composting pieces on Substack, which is that they're it, the only way that like waste is not an ontological category. Like waste does not actually exist in the, the economy of existence. Things get used and reused and they are purposed and repurposed. But the only way that you can truly, that something ever truly becomes waste is when we completely ignore it. And so for instance, uh, kind of using the composting as an, as, as an example, if I take a couple clippings from a plant or whatever, and I throw that in the plastic bag and that plastic bag makes it into the trash can, I have effectively denied its existence. But if I take those same clippings and I put them in the compost pile, then their form changes and it becomes reusable for future growth. And so I think that our concept of waste is, uh, well, a wasteful one. I, I think that when we when we relegate things to the category of waste, we have not tapped into uh we, we're missing something crucial about reality i don't think waste actually exists and our own souls coming back to where you started this our own souls are similar like the the experiences the things that we go through the things that are no longer useful to us uh that we would like to be rid of there there are still there's still there's some way to use that it like composting as an example there there are ways that we can take the things that are no longer applicable to us that we would trim off of ourselves and use that for future a future harvest right um, i have so. a I, I we have a composter on the homestead here uh, basically we just dump all our food scraps in it and then pile on leaves and then fire ash from my wood stove and mm -hmm. it just sits there and eventually it goes back in the garden and then we eat what the garden grows. Right. So right. Cy cycle of life. Yep. Something you said about um, putting leaves in a plastic bag and it becomes waste when we no longer think about it. You know, I, I wonder about how we trap our souls in certain ways. Because mm. a lot of people, man, they're, uh, you know, as you know, I've been on my own weird sort of journey here as of late. And I've, I've had to consider these things and uh, stuff I've put into plastic bags in the past that maybe I shouldn't. Yeah. Uh, we tried to, it's, it's preservation of a different kind, isn't it? Like we, we try to preserve things in the sense that maybe like the American national park system is trying to like preserve nature, but it's, we're discovering that that's actually not working very well in the sense that, the pristine quality that we quote unquote found the national parks in, it turns out that their condition was shepherded by people. It was people working with nature to cultivate it that brought it into the condition that was in. And so then when we show up and try to encase it in glass or, or fencing or whatever, and say, we're going to leave this exactly as it is. Well, it can't stay exactly as it is. Nothing can. And I think that's the, 
Although I think I think we still want national parks, though. I hope you're not um, torturing this analogy too much. No, I think I think <laughs> it's a it's it's a good. I I would rather have I would rather have uh, certain places that are I don't want to say policed, but there there is value to it. So I don't want I don't want to take away the value from it. But I guess what I'm I, all I'm trying to say is that there is uh, a way of preserving a thing that maintains i don't know that relevance is the right word but it keeps it active in the world in some way as opposed to putting it putting it behind a a plate a plane of glass and then it remains untouchable it becomes inactive and when it becomes inactive it no longer has it it, it, yeah, we remove its existence. I don't know. I'm rambling now. I, I feel right now the way that you did our, our last conversation. <laughs> it wasn't just technological that we had problems with uh, technology. <laughs> so, well, since then, you've uh, you, you've had this essay published in Front Porch Republic. Yeah, which was uh, what was it called on the Renaissance or something? Yeah, Craft and Theology: The Renaissance. The Renaissance. That's right. And, um, you know, that's pretty, the section where you talked about, you know, the church, I mean, obviously the, the church is a group of people, right? The mm -hmm. church is, you know, the body of the faithful right. in many ways, but there's also a physical manifestation of it. Mm -hmm. And the, the, the maintenance, the physical maintenance of churches is, uh, uh, w seemed to weigh heavy on your mind in this piece. Yeah, it's the the fallen, the dilapidation of physical reality that is maybe a manifestation of or not just a metaphor of. I don't think it's simply metaphorical. I think there is some deeper connection between the de the, the decay, the dilapidation of physical reality and the spiritual realities that that are underneath. And, you know, there's uh, Thomas Aquinas talks about how the contemplative life, which is like historically what, what the Christian West, like Catholicism has posited as maybe like the best way of existing. Like we, we want to be contemplating what is true and good and beautiful. The contemplative life requires the active life the life our life in the world in order to exist you, you can't we you can't have the mental without the physical because right. if you don't have the physical there's nothing to be mental about <laughs> there's, so, no, there's so, nothing so, to so, contemplate yeah some people might refer to that as the sort of mind-body duality which is represented in many things right Right. The, this, this Cartesian idea, which I mentioned only briefly of the, the separation of, I think therefore I am right. Like I, it is my, it is my mind that is central to, or even the, the total substance of my existence. Not, that's not how any of it goes. That's like any time that we try to reject or, or get away from physical reality, it it doesn't end very well uh the 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 movements that have done that um 
it's not, it's not been well, it's not gone well for their practitioners. And so, yeah, I think it's just interesting to look at St. Francis, who is the kind of the central figure that I bring up in, in that piece to look at St. Francis and the way that when he, when he had this vision, when he was in San Damiano in the chapel, looking at a crucifix and had this vision of Jesus, which obviously was in his physical vision, but then he had like this spiritual experience where he saw Jesus looking down at him from the cross, like turning his head to look at him, meet him in the eyes and tell him, rebuild my church, which is falling down. And then Francis doesn't interpret that spiritually. He is like, okay. And immediately sets about repairing churches, like physically maintaining structures. And he didn't have some subsequent vision in which Jesus was like, yeah, you got that wrong. Actually, what I, what I meant was you need to make sure that people believe the right things and you need to make sure that people's, you know, uh, the, the sewers and pe- the, the sewer lines and people's souls are pitched correctly. Uh, <laughs> you, all, all this kind of thing. Like he kept, he just, he went, he went after it. He went after doing the work of repairing these structures. And through that, I think this is where Aquinas is helpful is through that he had the physical he learned through the physical work of repair the he then had the the means that the stuff that he could reflect on to arrive at the spiritual realities that also needed working on so his own spiritual tinkering within his own soul was happening at the same time as he was doing his work and then from that he was able to apply the those things for the healing of the church uh, not just physically, but spiritually around him. They they were bound up in one another. Right. Yeah. Or as some of the memes might say, why not both? You know? Why not both? Por que uh, no los dos? <laughs> so, uh, so something uh, else you said later in the piece, you were talking about journeymen, right? And mm. there's, there's this phrase in the trades, a journeyman, uh, one who is practicing a trade, one who is learning, one who is on the journey. Um, there was a photograph I sent you, and I couldn't believe that I had not sent it to you previously, of these gentlemen I picked up hitchhiking when I was driving road trains in Australia. And they were from Germany, and they had the German carpenters outfits on. And um, when if you're listening to this, I'm going to include that photo in the in the show notes, uh, it may even be the title photograph for the thumbnail for this episode. But um those those three young young lads were literally journeying. They had left Germany, and before they had left, they had already undergone like part of it. Like they began the journey, and they were registered in what they called the Wunderschafter, right? So the Wunderschafter is this sort of ancient tradi- tradition where carpenters would travel around, and you would basically exchange your work for food and lodging, not for money. And you would get a little, like a little passport book and you would, you would go to a village and you would approach the mayor or the local authorities and they would sign off on you as a traveling carpenter. And you would go to town and you would work for people. And while you were there, you would interact with other carpenters and learn their skills. And then you would share yours with them and vice versa. Mm. And over time you became like a master carpenter, right? So this, this Wunderschaft of this journey is this ancient practice. And like these guys were still doing it in like 2014 
like in the full regalia with like the crazy pants and the white shirts and the hats, the whole nine yards. They had the little passports that have been the same since like the 13th or 14th century. And I just thought that was awesome. That's wild. That's so cool. That It's like, um, it's, it's almost like uh, in certain ancient forms of Christian monasticism, there was this traveling component. And even in certain third order religious groups uh, today, there's there's a, a travel bit. But yeah, it's like you're uh, you're you're going here and there uh, to to gain this this mastery, which is almost not possible without the travel. Like it's there's something in the leaving the comfort of home to go to unfamiliar places with unfamiliar people to gain the the little glimpses of wisdom that they have uh, in their practice of the same trade in order to f- more fully round out and, and more deeply comprehend what it is that you're even doing in the trade. I, I think that it's a really a shame that the status of journeyman and master, at least in my trade in plumbing has been reduced to uh you know, a, a, a government status where it's like you are as a journeyman, you're allowed to do the work, but you're not allowed to collect money for yourself. In other words, you can't own your own business, but as a master, you can own your own business. Um, and if you're a, a, there's, there's two levels or two designations of master, there's master. Um, I think it's class one and class two class one is restricted and class two is unrestricted. So you can work on structures up to 10,000 square feet. If you're restricted or over 10, any, basically any size, if you're unrestricted, I don't, I don't know what the purpose is between those two. Um, every master plumber that I know is unrestricted and I don't know why you, why you would get restricted. I, I don't even understand it. But point is, is that there's no journeying. There's no, like I happen to, to have journeyed. In that when I started my apprenticeship, it was in California and it was in Georgia that I finished my apprenticeship and got my journeyman license. But it wasn't like I got my journeyman license because I moved. It was just because I happened to be in a state that requires the license. And so I got it. Uh, I actually had a buddy, uh, funny enough, who uh, from California that moved to Germany to study carpentry. He, 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 uh, wasn't one of these fellas. I don't think I, I don't never seen a picture of him in lederhosen or anything, but, uh, I know, <laughs> I know for a fact that he moved there, uh, to study German carpentry methods. Uh, specifically he moved, they moved there with his wife. They still live there to this day. He's been doing carpentry for just as long, if not maybe a little bit shorter than I've been plumbing. So coming up on 10 years for him, probably, and uh, I'd be interested to know his experience and whether he had to whether whether he had to do that or not because I know that he doesn't. It's all like old school joining methods. He doesn't use screws or nails or or even glues really. Like it's it's like ancient woodcraft. So wow, yeah, I'd love I'd love to learn that myself. No doubt. But um, another component to the journeying or the you know the Wunderschafte that's not necessarily related to the work itself but as you mentioned you get to meet other people you get to see how other things are done and then you have to get outside yourself right because it's Mm. very easy when you're at home in a place you've never left to sort of sit in your own behavior and sit in your own attitudes and sit in your own comfort zone and not be challenged in any other way and so like over and above the work you have to like develop sort of interpersonal skills and understanding of like how other people roll. And it like, it makes you a, 
more better person. And if you're a better person, you're probably also a better businessman and also better at your trade because you like get along with your customers better. So like all of this stuff connects, right? Right. Yeah. There's, I mean, this is something that our mutual hero, Matthew Crawford talks about a, a good bit is that there is in the, in the learning of a skilled practice, there is a tutoring of your morals that happens during the process. And he gives the example of diagnosis. So in the, what are, what are called the stochastic arts, the, those, uh, those practices that deal with repair, you're not the one doing the building, you're not manufacturing anything, but you show up to diagnose issues and then prescribe solutions or healings in diagnosis. You must be attentive and attentiveness is a cognitive moral factor, uh, factor it's, um, faculty, sorry. It's a cognitive moral faculty. It's cognitive because you are receiving information and your, your mind is having to process certain bits of data that are being given to you communication that you are receiving from the person or thing that you are trying to diagnose. But it's also moral because it requires humility to accept the fact that what is being communicated to you is other than what you would like for it to be. And you are having to submit yourself to that reality and deal with it as it is, rather than telling it, no, you're going to be this. Like there's no, as he likes to, as Crawford likes to say, there's no, there's no weaseling your way out of a thing not working. Like if I, if I rebuild a toilet and I think I build the toilet and I go to turn the water back on and fill the tank back up and I immediately have leaks from the tank bolts. I can't just say I, there's no, there's no getting out of that. There's no saying like, no, I act, I know how it looks, but I really did fix it. It's like, no, I didn't. It's still leaking. And so I got to turn the water back off, drain it back down and start it over again. And so, so my, my, uh, my ability to diagnose requires both my mind and my morals as well as the proper use of my body. So it's this integrating practice where, where I bring all of my otherwise perhaps disparate faculties and sort of unite them. I won them, right? O-N-E, like the number one. Um, Julian of Norwich is the one who who talks about the the soul being one with God in that sense and that through the practice of prayer. And so I think work is this wanting activity that brings all of these different facets of your being and applies them to a singular goal, which is to in my case, diagnose and fix the thing, but, but all skilled practices tend to have that, that ability. And yeah, it does. It trains your, it it trains your ability to your interpersonal skills, your ability to, um, to, because our, our ability to apply our trade well is dependent on receiving wisdom from other people, listening to other experiences. This reminds me of something you wrote and I, you pardon me for forgetting exactly where you wrote this, but you mentioned that in being a plumber, you are also kind of a therapist in that like there's a major problem in someone's house and they're kind of freaking out about it. And you have to sort of like manage and temper your clients freak out because there's sewage in their basement and you have to fix the problem. 
right? Right. But like yeah. they, they're having a visceral emotional reaction to the problem because it's a major problem. Right. The way that I conceive of what I do in somebody's home as a service plumber is that I am not, I am not there primarily to fix a plumbing issue. I am there to do that, but that isn't the primary goal because if the customer, let's say, was totally fine swimming through their basement to find their stuff and then swimming back to the stairs and going back upstairs and they were happy with that, they wouldn't have called me, right? If they were content with that arrangement, there wouldn't be a need for a plumber, but they're not content with that arrangement that it has stolen their peace from them. It is, it is somehow not matching up to their expectation of reality. And so my job as the plumber is to go back in there and primarily to restore to them a, to restore to them the reality that they expect to live in, in some way. And I happen to do that by the plying of this particular trade. But it could have been otherwise, right? It could have been that they're electrical, that like their their lights don't turn on in a room that's important to them. And that that upsets them. And so the electrician shows up and does the same thing, restores peace. But they happen to do it by the plying of their trade, which is different from mine. So yeah, so there's this therapeutic aspect to this, which if you're not attentive to it, like anybody, I guess, conceivably could show up and, and take care of the of the plumbing but there has to be this assurance on the customer's part that when I leave, that they're, that things really are back to how they want them. And if they're not, if they're not convinced of that, if they still don't have peace of mind, then I haven't fully done my job. I might, I might have fixed the plumbing, but they're going to be far more likely to call back into the office and say like, ah, can you send somebody else out just to be sure that like what was done was blah, 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 right. And even if I did my job, right, if they don't feel like I did my job, right, because I haven't adequately explained what's going on. I haven't, um, I haven't soothed their, their inflamed emotional world. Uh, then, then I haven't done fully what's required of me. Right. And that's a, that, that's a very important consideration. Something I like to bang on about is uh, the human element in all of these different activities and the work we do in our relationship with employers and whatnot. And um, it's, it strikes me that like your sort of therapeutic and psychological approach to your clients um, fits in with that. So yeah. um, you've been plumbing for 10 years mm -hmm. and uh, writing on plumbing and faith and whatnot for how long? Mm, maybe. I think two of them at this point, just the last couple of years has been the, the focus on reflecting on and, and writing on my experiences and thoughts. Yeah. Right. So uh, maybe take me and my uh, listeners back to wh where Nathan started. You said you grew up in California and you ended up in Georgia. Yeah. Um, you're also a man of faith. You're an Anglican. Maybe you can remind me how long that's been a thing, how you came to it. And yeah. then where, 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 and when you started to notice the interplay between your faith and work, because that seems to be the sort of locus of your thought and writings. Yeah. Well, so buckle in everyone. My, my story is <laughs> exciting. So I was born in Long Beach, California on a Saturday and then not the next day, but the following sun, the following Sunday. So eight days later, uh, I was presented to the nursery at the church. Um, I say presented facetiously. I was just handed over to whoever was working it. But uh, 
in a similar way that Jesus was handed over to the temple on his eighth day. Uh, so that's about where the comparison between me and Jesus stops, though. Uh, then I was raised in California until I was about 10. In the summer between fifth and sixth grade, my folks moved to Texas. And so I was in Texas for basically all of junior high and high school, moved back to California immediately after high school, was there for about seven years, met uh, quickly and married my wife. We had a couple daughters. And then in June of 2015, we moved to Georgia. Plumbing came around. Let's see. It must've been beginning of, I guess it was beginning of 2014 is when I started. So I'm right at the 10 year mark. And that was a fluke. Uh, and I, I mean, it was Providence, but it was kind of a fluke in that I was not a handy guy. I didn't grow up uh, pulling things apart and putting them back together. I had no, no care whatsoever for you the didn't, inner workings. You, you didn't learn plumbing or any other handy skills from your dad. No, not, and not because my dad's not handy. My dad is a tradesman. He, he spent, he's a blue collar guy. My grandpa's blue collar, great grandpa's blue collar uncles. A couple of them are blue collar. So it's like, it's not that I wasn't around it. It was just that it had, it had no sway over my imagination. I had, it did not capture me in any way, shape or form. My dad would try and pull me in the garage and here's how you drive a nail. And I was like, how about you take that nail and drive it into my head? Because that sounds more fun than learning how to drive a nail. Thank you, dad. And, uh, you know, like it just wasn't, it wasn't my cup of tea. So when I, when I told my wife, I'm going to be a plumber, she looked at me and she was like, do you know you, are you, are you sure? <laughs> it's like, yes, I, I am sure. And, and the, what the change was, what, what finally captured me was I saw a poster from this plumbing manufacturer called American standard. I found a poster and on the poster, it was this guy standing there in, you know, bib coveralls and, uh, and a, a button down with a flat cap on, he had a pipe wrench and a pipe wrench in his hand. And he was standing on his pedestal uh, over this like sea of faces that go off as far as you can see into the background of the poster. And it said, the plumber protects the health of the nation. And I was like, yeah, Oh yeah, I can get with that. Like that. Cause I was working a customer service job. I was, I was at this customer service job for a property management company, sitting at a desk, feeling like I was doing absolutely nothing with my life. It was a luxury community. So it was a bunch of high earning individuals, um, who, you know, were so busy that they couldn't pay their utilities and their rent on time. And so my primary job was to slap people's hands and say, Hey, get your rent paid. Hey, make sure you pay your electricity. Uh, oh man, Susan's cat crapped in the hallway on you know level 12 again like it was just meaningless filing and it felt meaningless i'm sure it was benefiting somebody probably you're you're sort of a mall cop in a way yeah and like it just was the opposite of fulfilling it was it was draining my soul of all 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 vim and vinegar was gone so i uh heard Mike Rowe, the host of the famous show Dirty Jobs and a voiceover actor for a number of other things. I saw, I heard his voice kind of echoing through my head one day. And he said, um, you need to find a different toolbox, which is the words that his grandpa said to him because he wanted to be like his grandfather, who was a blue collar 
like a paragon of blue collar work. He could build, he always talks about how he could build a house without blueprints from the ground up, plumbing, electrical, framing, roofing, all of it. And so he would spend a lot of time with his grandpa trying to do the work with him and just was not good at it. He it never, it didn't come to him easily. Uh, and no matter how much he applied to it, he just couldn't, couldn't grasp it. And so his grandpa told him, maybe you need to find a different toolbox, which for him was everything he ended up doing. He, you know, worked on QVC and ended up hosting dirty jobs and a number of other things. Well, because his toolbox is his voice box, you know, right. Um, I, I'm, I'm not going to win any competition with Mike Rowe as some kind of host or radio announcer. You know what I'm saying? Have you ever seen that video of him kind of demonstrating what he does in a booth where like he can, he he'll listen to almost separate his, his hearing and his speech cognitively so that he he's listening and then saying what he's hearing on a delay. So he'll hear an input that they, that whoever wants him to say, and they'll read the script to him and he'll listen to the script as he's listening to it. He's like two or three words behind and he never stumbles perfect inflection. I mean like typical, what you expect when you, when you, what you expect when you're listening to micro, like what you expect him to sound like, it's what he sounds like. There's no, stutter it's wild i mean he's really talented when it comes to this stuff anyway so he so in my mind i hear him say maybe you need to find a different toolbox which for me wasn't a voice box it was as it turns out an actual toolbox and that was at a time in my life where not only was i not happy with the work i was doing but i also was thinking that i was going to be a pastor i i was i was had had trained for and was thinking that i was going to go into pastoral ministry and the Anglican thing has been ongoing through all of this. Anglicanism came down the road just slightly. So at this point, I'm still kind of in like a non-denominational environment. Um, I, I, which I was what I was raised in was largely either non-denominational or Baptist, which some people joke are like two ways of saying the same thing, which is to say non-denominational theology is largely almost in uh, indistinguishable from Baptist theology. So I, at this point was thinking in my church, which was non-denominational was thinking that I was going to be a pastor. And so I had this, I had this pastor call me to offer me a job and say like, Hey, we want you on staff because he was going to retire and he wanted somebody who's going to take his place in like five or 10 years or whatever. And I was like, yeah, sure. He called me, offered me the job, but he could only pay me for basically a half a salary. He could only pay me part-time. And so I was gonna have to supplement that with other work on the flip side. Literally an hour after I got that call from that pastor, I got a call from this owner of a plumbing company who I'd interviewed with. And he said, I, we'd, we'd like to have you on board. We're going to pay you, you know, 15 bucks an hour or whatever it is. And, um, you know, start you down the career. And I was like, really? Two, two doors within an hour of each other opening? Couldn't just make it easy and make it the one or the other. It had to be both. <laughs> so I have to have some agency in this. I have to make a choice. And, um, what it came down to was I, I, I was convinced that God would be, would be with me in either direction, but the considerations were this, if I were to go into a season of ministry and that season ended unexpectedly or whatever, what was I going to do? Go back to a $14 an hour customer service job with a wife and children. Like that didn't seem like good planning, right? That didn't seem like wisdom to me. Also, I realized that Although I'd spent a lot of time studying theology and, and the Bible, 
I didn't actually know how to live a Christian life. Like my, my head was full of thoughts going back to the Aquinas thing, right? Where the, the active life is, is the substance that the contemplative life feeds on. I didn't have active Christian living for, for me. So that when people came to me, they could say, how do I, like, how should I think about this, that, or the other thing I had no, I, I was young. I was like in my early twenties and was enthusiastic, but I hadn't actually lived. I hadn't spent time like as a disciple, as an apprentice to Jesus, really. Uh, that didn't come until I started plumbing, interestingly. So I didn't, I didn't really know how to, if I was going to pastor people, like what's the point of a pastor? The pa- a pastor is there to lead people into living a Christian life. And I realized I don't actually know how to live a Christian life myself, let alone lead other people into that thing. So I didn't feel like it was a good thing for me to be pastoring at that moment. Um, so the money, the, the pastoring, and then I don't know, like I'd probably list off some other stuff too, but those are the, those are the primary two. So I chose the plumbing route thinking, you know, with, with the prayer, like God make me the kind of person through this route of plumbing that I could one day answer what I feel is this call that you've, that you've given to me to lead other people in the way of Christ. So and, do you, do you, do you feel that that call has manifested itself now in the writing rather than becoming a pastor? No. Well, maybe. I think they're they're a part and parcel with one another. I think the the writing thing, I mean, there's there's plenty of people that can be out there and do whatever their work is and not worry about talking about it, right? Like they don't they don't feel compelled to write. And they and they and that's fine. They should just do the thing and not worry about writing it. But I for whatever reason, whenever I get into a thing, I always like one of the first thoughts that ever that always comes to my mind is maybe I'll write a book about this someday. I don't know why I ne- like I never set out to be an author. I never was like, I'm going to write, but I always but I do always I have the recurring thought. I think I'm going to write about this. And so I think that's part of fulfilling the call. But I think that pastoral ministry, what it really is, is the curing and care of individual souls, which can happen through writing. And obviously like one of the central items of the Christian faith is a book, right? Or like a library of books unto itself. So I'm not saying that writing is unimportant or that it doesn't play a role in this. However, I think that when it, when it comes to being a good pastor, part of that is knowing the lives of the people that you are ministering to uh, and being able to be sensitive, attentive to diagnosing the things of their soul such that you can give a precise uh, prescription or, yeah, I think prescription is the right word, a precise prescription to their soul that is going to bring them the most amount of health. And writing can be a component of that, but it, I don't know that for me that it would be the entirety of it because I don't know who's going to read my writing. I don't know where they're at or whether it's going to be applicable to them in some way. If it happens to be, that's awesome. But if it's not, then on on that, on that question though, are you, are you now finding out who your writing speaks to? I mean, you're having a certain amount of success with the blue scholar, your Substack. you know, you got picked up by Christianity today and now front porch Republic and you're working on this other thing. So obviously people are picking up what you're putting down. Yeah. I think that I, I just happen to be thinking 
it feels like a right place, right time type scenario. Like I just happen to be thinking about something that is, well, two big things that pretty much everybody will think about at some point in their life. Like work is, you, it's unavoidable. Like everybody has to do something to make a living. Uh, and so it touches on everybody by virtue of the fact that everybody has to work to live. <laughs> and then, you know, the, the religion piece of it, you know, most people at some point are going to wonder whether there's something beyond material reality and have some kind of metaphysical existential crisis. And so I, I, I feel like I'm in, I I'm just writing at the intersection of those, of those two ideas and how they interplay with one another. And so, yeah, I don't know. I don't know how to think about that. I I'll, I'd have to put more thought into it, I guess, to answer the question better. But initially I, I don't know that to answer your previous question, I don't know that it's the fullness of what I'm doing or the, uh, that it, that it fulfills completely what I feel I'm called to, but I do think it certainly plays a part in it. Yeah. All right. Well, you know, there's a fairly famous figure out there, uh, Jordan Peterson, who has remarked that, you know, writing is basically organizing your thoughts. And the more you write, the more your thoughts get organized. So mm. as long as you carry on this track, all of these things you're not sure of are, are bound to fall into place. And um, I mean, I'm digging it and apparently other people are digging it. So um, you obviously most writers reference the work of others. Um, you and I are both big fans of Matthew Crawford. Mm. You are also well-versed um, with a, a number of other writers, me, not so much. Uh, one of whom is Ivan Illich. And, you know, you, you and Brandon talk about that guy a lot. Uh, our <laughs> mutual Brandon Daly. G'day, Brandon. I know you'll be listening to this. What's up, Brandon? Uh, but yeah, Illich. T take, take us down the path of Illich a little bit. Yeah. Well, so Illich... Um... And to be clear, I am no Illich scholar, but I have, I, I do dabble. Uh, and Illich is this wonderful cultural critic, uh, philosopher of technology, writing in the in mid century. Um, also a Roman Catholic priest, although I don't, frankly, I don't know how much he discussed his religion. Um, he, he mainly wrote for a, a more popular philosophical audience, but. Illich uh, some pretty incisive stuff to say about industrialism. And so he he's helpful in trying to consider whether the tools that we use, the tools that have come into existence for our use are basically more or less humanizing, uh, whether they, they really do what they say they are going to do in a way that preserves and fosters our humanity or if they perhaps if they do do the thing that they're advertised to do, they do it at our expense or they don't even do the thing that they say they're going to do. So there's like different, different categories of thinking about, about tools, but in his book uh, tools for conviviality, he starts by discussing these two watershed moments in the development of certain technologies. And that at the first watershed moment, it's doing the most amount of good, like a maximal amount of good for the most amount of people. And then as other interests get involved, whether that's monetary or political or whatever, um, there's quote unquote progress as it progresses, it approaches a second threshold where 
the amount of good that that progress brings about only benefits a very small amount of people and becomes toxic to the point that that technology is now actually doing damage to the most amount of people rather than the first watershed moment where it was doing the most amount of good to the most amount of people. So uh, it's just a really, a really helpful framework. And he gives a bunch of examples. Some of the, some of that he writes about most notably are uh, actually transportation is one of them, um, which you may be interested in. Another is medicine, education, anything that follows an industrialized model. Anything that follows the industrial model is ultimately doomed to blow past the first watershed to the second and become bad uh, for a majority of people. Uh, he talks about how in medicine there's, um, oh gosh, what's the term? It's like, uh, <laughs> I can't remember now. He talks about how there there's basically like medicine doctor created diseases i think it's like iatrim yeah iatrogenic iatrogenic thank you where doctors who are supposed to be preserving and fostering the health of the people are the ones causing disease yeah and and like disease maybe in the the biological sense of like we have a disease but like think about the word dis-ease it's it's removing ease from people's existence, uh, which in other conversations I've talked about the love of ease as a disease in and of itself. But, um, you know, like it's it's really I mean, it's a really kind of a bleak picture, but I think it's helpful because it one of the things that he talks about, and I quote this in, in my piece, The Sorcerer's Slave, is he talks about how one of the things that we do is we we try to make machines that work for us. And when we outsource what is fundamentally our human calling, which is to work, and we try and build a thing that does the work for us, that thing is doomed to failure. But when we make tools and machines that work with us, that are truly tools, then they can be good. Um, but tools almost have like a, a like. I don't know how to talk about it. Maybe like a pseudo morality where tools are amoral in and of themselves, but they invite particular use. And so because they're, they, they're made with a certain design and a certain use in mind. And so uh, while the tool might be sitting there doing nothing, and while you can use tools in ways that are uh, that deviate from their purpose, there are certain tools that if you use them for their purpose, they become dehumanizing and they 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 take some they steal something of your own humanity or of the humanity of the people around you and uh and so how can we create tools that are going to be good both for the user and for the people that are the recipient of their use right yeah i i, I would bring that to my own life and uh the point of some of my writing um with automated vehicles you know a car is a tool to get you from point a to point b a truck is a tool to get a significant amount of product from point A to point B. And, you know, people who operate these vehicles, drivers, um, they interact and use the tool. And we see this trend where more and more of your interaction, your use, your application of your skills to that tool are being removed for, to my mind, really dumb reasons. 
Yeah. And you know, then, then, it, then it turns into the whole de-skilling that Crawford talks about. Right. Like, right. You know, you, 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 as, as you put it, there's like a, a morality or immorality. And you know, if, if, if you're just sitting there babysitting a robot, are you actually using the tool anymore? Or are you just like a passive fail safe for it rather than actually using it? Yeah. And I, I find the, the trend of making people as passive fail safes for technology that's supposedly doing everything for you. Yeah. It's I'm not, I'm not interested in participating in any of that. Education plays a big role in a lot of this too. We talk about like de-skilling and um, the development, the engineering of these tools, which is as you brought up in your recent piece, uh, on Substack, it is largely a top-down effort. Like nobody asked for autonomous vehicles. Not really. Like the no. market didn't demand this. Uh, this is something that like a a, a, a couple like brainy, uh, money-laden individuals decided that they would try to bring into existence Tech and then bros. create uh, technocrats, right? And then they tried to to create the circumstances that would generate the demand for the thing that they're creating. And uh, Illich sees education as largely that, like like this, like school as it currently exists, is largely a part of that project. Um, he says, "School." This is one quote of his: "School is the advertising agency which makes you believe that you need the society as it is, and if the society as it is is one that has been handed down to us by a group of technocrats." that benefit by us buying into their view of the good life, then of course, like the, the, and, and the public school system happens to be controlled by the same people who are giving us this vision of the good life. Then like, they're going to, they're going to catechize us right for, for also viewing this life as the, as what is truly good. But I think what we're discovering is that not many of us are actually very happy in the in the reality that has been created that we've been thrust into nobody's really happy with uh, what paul king's north calls the machine you know um it, it, i was telling my daughter about the matrix the other day she's 10 years old and has never never seen the movie and um but i had mentioned it some i i don't remember when and so she was asking me about it and i was like you know i was like the, the she's like is the matrix real and i was like Depends on what you mean by real. Well, it's, 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 it's not that it's real. It's a documentary film at this point. Right. Like it certainly seems like it, like that there's, that there's machine that uses humans as little battery packs to, to, to power itself, you know? And like that kind of what we've turned into. Uh, and so in that sense, uh, yes, it is real, but, um, you know, like the, we are thrust into a reality that we didn't choose. And then ultimately at one point, all of us are going to no longer exist in this reality. And it feels kind of futile in between. It feels like there's, there's can do. Um, but I think that we have to take a long, I think we have to take a long view of a generational view of what's happening and really reclaim that word generation like we have to generate things uh and not just humans but we have to generate the humans and the circumstances in which those humans can flourish and that truly is a generation and so our work is uh we're foolish if we think that it ends with us but we're also foolish if we think that uh that there's nothing to be done either 
just because it won't end with us. We, we have to build tools that are convivial to go back to Illich things that are going to make for the mutual flourishing of the maximal amount of humans. The more things change, the more they stay the same. Um, you always need maintenance. Society is a never ending project. Humans are a never ending project. Mm-hmm. Um, so another, something else I wanted to ask you about, um, you wrote this other piece called uh, in defense of yard talk. Mm. And there was or there, something here recently came to mind. Uh, one of my little side gigs, my brother-in-law has this company that he only sort of, it's like a side hustle. It's a side gig for him too. And he has this technology called AeroSeal and he's a franchisee for it. Mm. And it's basically this sort of like heater system with an aerosolizer, kind of like a fuel injector, but it takes glue you blow it through an HVAC system under a certain amount of pressure with this like big box fan and it seals up all the, all the little small cracks and holes in an HVAC system, whether it's a house or an apartment building with like a hundred apartments in it. Um, Yeah. And and it can, it can increase the efficiency of your system from all of the loss from all these little cracks and holes by like up to 15 or 20%. It's really cool stuff. It's one of these, sort of environmental uh, technologies that's like legit. It's not like a grift or a scam or anything. It actually does, you know, help you save energy. Yeah. So anyway, I'm on this job with him and he, he was late. He had to go to a meeting or something. And I'm sort of hanging around with a bunch of plumbers who are doing like all the natural gas fittings in the bottom floor of this uh, like six story uh, building in Ithaca that used to be sort of semi-industrial and was being retrofitted with new apartments. This one natural gas fitter guy was like talking about eugenics and trying to explain the sort of project and history of eugenicism to like one of his fellow natural gas plumbers. And like I piped up about Francis Galton Darwin and this guy's eyes like just about jumped out of his head. He's like, wow, somebody on this job site knows who Darwin's cousin or nephew or whoever was. I'm like, yeah, yeah, yeah. He's like the OG eugenicist guy. Like, and in a way, it was a sort of example of like, you know, yard talk, like not your typical sort of yard talk, but it's just like a couple couple of working dudes just yammering on about something that is not the actual job at hand, Mm. right? But that's, Mm. that, that discussion creates a sort of convivial environment on the job site where like we can, you know, we don't always just have to talk about work and it's sort of like acts as a social lubricant. Yeah. A lubricant. It, it sort of weaves this social fabric that everybody can, can exist in where those, where those kinds of conversations can happen. It's there, there's so much like benign talk that happens between people. And while those maybe don't have, any immediate effect like it, it's just like you may as well have not talked to that person if you look at it like at a day-by-day basis like maybe in that day that conversation didn't affect you in any noticeable way but all those little conversations adding up over time all of a sudden you look back and realize that you've you have a relationship with this person and that relationship allows certain things to be discussed that couldn't or wouldn't otherwise be, particularly as it relates to gaining mastery, going back to this journey 
idea, right? And like the pursuit of being a master, it's it's only within the context of this social fabric that that mastery can actually be gained. And it looks like pipe fitters talking about eugenics until all of a sudden they're not talking about eugenics anymore and you're talking about other things. I don't know. It's really it's really beautiful. And I think that kind of conversation has to be allowed to happen um, because otherwise the 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 that is the trust that's built that mastery depends on is not otherwise built. And if it's not, then mastery isn't achieved. If mastery isn't achieved, then we're, we're surrounded by crappy work. And I just don't, I just don't think that anybody wants crappy work. No, no, your, your end user doesn't want crappy work. You want stuff to last. I remember I was having, you know, speaking of yard talk, I was, having a chat with my brother-in-law and then another friend of ours, who's a, uh, also a contractor builder. It's been building houses for like 20, 20 years. And you know, every, everybody always has the, what would you do if you won the lottery chat? You know? And right. I, I said, you know, I would call you guys, my brother-in-law and our friend Chris and say, you know, I have all this money. Let's build a house. That's going to last 500 years without any maintenance. How do we do that? Mm. Spare no expense. Let's build something that nobody has to touch for, you know, how many generations is that down the track? That's that that's your sustainability right there. And you're sort of, you know, glory to God in a way, right? Like you're building something that's going to stand the test of time last. It's still going to be here. And in making something that's uh, lasting, and is, you know, an object of good and that it doesn't require, um, it, it doesn't require the sort of like, you know, I don't want to say wasteful maintenance because, you know, things require maintenance and that's sort of part of things. But like a lot, a, a lot of houses and buildings we build these days are crappy and are going to require tons of extra maintenance and require a whole lot more energy put into them. Never mind, you know, their original construction or, or heating the things. Right. So I, I, I think it's just like a sort of, a godly pursuit to make things that are going to last. Yeah. Well, there's, you know, you, there people, builders will take shortcuts to make, to use, you know, like in the course of the construction of the thing. And in the first number of years of its existence, maybe it uses less energy or, or something like that. But then because it's built crappily, uh, over time, it ends up consuming more energy in terms of maintenance and perhaps its own efficiency or lack thereof. And as opposed to making the expenditure upfront to create something, build something well and reduce the total amount of weight, uh, maintenance. And therefore, yeah, just, just what you're saying, you pay now or you pay later, but you're going to pay one way or the other. And often the later payment is the more expensive one. Um, so, you know, pay now in terms and, of, well, also depending on how far down the, the track you kick it, it also has the sin of making other people pay. It's not you. It's like mm. the next, the next potential owner or somebody off in the future, you know, and this is, I mean, you could take a deeper dive with that notion in like the way the government spends money and borrows money to do things right. Like, you know, our great, 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 great grandchildren are still going to be paying off the debt that our overlords uh, incurred to basically destroy uh, the seat of civilization over in the Middle East. And then all of the sort of 
you know, downstream consequences of that we're still dealing with, you know, I think that's a sin to expect the unborn many generations in the future to have to pay for that kind of garbage. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, we were talking about building things. Well, it reminded me, I was doing some work a few years ago on this little church of England priest, who's kind of been forgotten by, by the vast majority, even within the Anglican world. And, um, his name is father, Andrew SDC SDC stands for society of the divine compassion. Uh, father Andrew, uh, he has, as far as I'm aware, one last living goddaughter. Uh, he, he was born in the 1800s, 18, uh, let's see, 1870s, I believe. And, uh, was ordained a priest in the 1890s, died in 1946. So a God, his goddaughter at this point, her name is Mary. Mary's fairly old. I'm like probably in the eighties or nineties, but she has living memory of father Andrew. And so long story short, I ended up on a phone call with her, which cost me a hundred dollars because long distance, but it's neither here nor there. Um, we talked and I forget how it came up, but she was in, in her little cottage in England, the address of which has no number, by the way, her, her little cottage's address is literally just house on the hill. <laughs> it just, that's, that's how old this cottage is. And, uh, she told me that the cottage in which she lives, I can't remember if she said it, that it was 400 or 600 years old, but it's, it's one of the two of them. And let's just go with the younger 400. I was, I remember thinking like that is nearly double the age of my country, let alone like any structure that's standing here in that's pretty wild to me. So yeah, just this, just this idea of, of building things that last like good grief. That's wild. Well, I mean, um, some of my listeners, maybe you, I don't know. Um, I I went to Edinburgh in 2008 over in Scotland, took my Mm. grandparents there and, you know, downtown Edinburgh, Never mind the castle up on the hill, all the rest of it. Like most of that stuff was built in the 15th century, 16th mm-hmm. century. And it's still there, still being used. Um, that's awesome. Why can't we build stuff like that anymore? What's the problem? Yeah, we could. We just, our, our, our underlying value system has changed. We just don't, we don't value the same things that they valued. And we think that our technologies are signs of progress, but we are, producing demonstrably poorer quality work at every turn. And I don't know. I think, I think we all thought that it was going to be better and we're just discovering that it's not over and over and over again. Everything that we thought was going to be better is not better. I mean, maybe not everything that's probably overstating the case, but um, many things, many things that we, that we built thinking uh, on the premise that if we had more of it and it was cheaper, that that would be better for us. We're discovering, in fact, it was not. The cheapest option isn't always the least expensive. Um, speaking of, you know, shoddy work. So, you know, I, I am not a plumber. Um, I dabble in construction here and there and various little things. But uh, something that I've discovered in helping my father-in-law with his sort of renovation business and various other projects I've been on is that uh, a lot of stuff was in fact sort of cobbled together poorly or 
what they thought to be cheap, which actually turned out to be expensive later on. Uh, how, how often do you come across that with plumbing? Like where has the sort of like art and science of plumbing, uh, how, where, how has it progressed? Was it bad before? Is it getting better? Um, in, in one of your pieces here, you said that you and your fellow pr plumbers uh, refer to yourselves as drain surgeons, um, which, you know, hell of a turn of phrase. <laughs> how how has uh, plumbing itself improved? Uh, was it bad before? Do you like how how's that all look to you? Yeah, the big the big historical turn in the development of plumbing technologies really comes uh, right before or perhaps during it was part and parcel with industrialization. So that that is, I think, one of perhaps the good things that came out of the Industrial Revolution um is our waste management systems and that was it was in the 18 i guess roughly 30s starting in england up into the 1890s and 1900 here in the united states that in home plumbing really changed uh we we kind of conceive as of plumbing as being this one integrated system between water distribution drainage public utilities so on and so forth. It, these it was by, it was not obvious that these things were connected in previous generations. Be, before industrialization, you, yes, you'd have to get fresh water, but it wasn't immediately obvious that it would go into a drain that was also piped into your house, and that that drain would take it to a public sewer that would go to a treatment plant. Like not like that. That infrastructure didn't exist, uh, and the in fact were public works if there were public waterworks uh it was actually for uh for like firefighters or for other it was just for other things it wasn't it wasn't obvious to them that like oh this is for homes uh in each individual home was kind of on its own as to how it was going to get water fresh water keep it fresh uh drain it away you know for a lot of human history the the waste uh, of the average home, suburban or urban home, was just thrown out the window uh, into into the street, mm. and chamber pots were Ooh. from which we get the word potty. Uh, chamber <laughs> pots were just dumped. They they were just dumped either onto an already dirt street, or uh, maybe they had a uh, like roughly the equivalent of a septic tank on their property somewhere. Uh, we've experimented over the, the, the centuries with basically the, the human version of a litter box <laughs> uh, where you, instead of having a water closet, it was a dirt closet and you would take your, you drop your deuce into a box that had dirt in it and you would occasionally open the side door of it and throw some more soil in and then close it back up. Uh, and they discovered that that wasn't super great. Human so litter box. I mean, basically that's, you know, it's got some precedent. The cats weren't the first ones. I guess it was us, but, oh. and actually uh, one, one story that uh, gives us the origin of the British word loo for, for the toilet uh, going to the loo loo actually came. They there's one explanation is that the word came from a larger French phrase, which was anglicized and shortened to guardy Lou. And 
what would happen is as a person would throw their chamber pot out the window, they would say, Gardy Lou, and which in the French translates to watch out for water. It's a bit of a euphemism because it's not exactly water that's being thrown out, is it? <laughs> or the word for water, you, you pronounce that incorrectly, although that's not you, that's the English. They're saying Lou. Uh, water is a low L apostrophe E-A-U. And it's mm. correctly pronounced en français. It's low. Okay, so got a low. So low, so yeah, so low becomes loo, and loo is now the word for toilet. So there's this kind of fun etymological, uh, historical explanation there. But you know, like it, it's really since industrialization, there's been a lot of arguably progress, and maybe I'm biased because I'm a plumber. But you know, now we have these self-contained systems in people's homes where we have a piping system that's dedicated to bringing fresh water in. We've got drainage. Uh, pipes that are dedicated to taking uh, what we have expelled from our bodies out and that water is or that that waste is taken treated reused in some form or fashion um, and it, it's a good thing as far as more direct materials go you know copper has been used in water systems for thousands of years uh, I think one of the oldest systems that they found or some of the oldest plumbing that they found the use of copper in was uh, in a, a former Mesopotamian region. And I think, it, or no, it was the Indus Valley. And I think it was like 5,000 BC maybe is what that copper was dated to in the, in the use of plumbing. So like, so copper is pretty tried and true. Like it's, it's been around in a, in a plumbing or proto plumbing application uh, for a large bulk of human history. But then you've got more recently things like PEX, which is a cross-braided polyethylene. You've got just plain polyethylene. You've got polybutylene, uh, uh, galvanized steel. You've got PVC, polyvinyl chloride. You've got CPVC, which is a derivation of that. Um, there, there's all kinds of all kinds of materials that have come into existence uh, that are are all being used for essentially the same thing. And there, there are certain products that are better used in certain applications, just depending on the quality of the water that is going to be traveling through the pipes, um, how long you expect the structure to be using that plumbing, uh, the physical circumstances like copper is more difficult to get into an existing structure, but PEX, you can kind of flex around corners if you need to. Um, and, and it's, it's better for, for some tighter spaces. That's arguable. Some plumbers would disagree with me on that one, but getting, if you, if you have 50 plumbers, they've got 50 different ways of doing the same exact thing. So maybe that's not saying much after all. Um, so yeah, there, there, uh, there are some improvements. And I think that, um, the way that, the way that plumbing has progressed, it largely was at a standstill from basically <laughs> from basically ancient Rome until the medieval monasteries in the 13th, 14th century. Um, the monasteries were and, and larger castles were kind of on the forefront of certain small innovations in the way that they um, the way that they disposed of their waste and developed certain methods of getting water into their structures. But then it was a giant pause again until basically the industrial revolution and what precipitated that was there was this event in england the thames river called the great stink uh 
the the Thames River was a, a giant waste artery at that point, and all of the 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 waste drainage from people's homes and from the surrounding uh, London and suburbs were all going into the Thames, and the Thames was just this giant polluted, disgusting mess. A cholera outbreak happens that's decimating the population uh, in Europe broadly, but in in England uh, specifically, and. As a result of that, they realize that like we we really are going to have to change the way that we do things uh, if if we hope to weather this particular storm and then not have this happen again. And so yeah, so it was uh, a number of folks who engineered some new sewerage for the city of London and it cleaned up the Thames and made these beautiful sewage treatment plants. And I say beautiful unironically, I'm, I'm talking the architecture is absolutely wonderful and it still exists um, in museum form, if I'm not mistaken to this day, and you can take tours of it, but it's been, it's a lot, most, the, the most amount of development in plumbing that's happened in human history has probably happened in the last 150 years. And so we're, we're kind of reaping the benefits of it right now. Right. But uh, from your so you you do service mostly, mm-hmm. which is mm-hmm. you're basically fixing problems in homes that are. Uh, I'm guessing most of your clients' homes are less than 150 years old, probably less than 100 in most cases. Yes. So in the more uh, modern manufacture, like, are, are do you see like a sort of trend of shoddy work, like most home remodelers see? Yeah. Yeah. The stuff that's built, that's the stuff that's old is built well. And the stuff that is built within the last 15 to 20 years is built like absolute garbage. And the the stuff that's old that we go to is old, not because, or rather we're going there, not because it's old. We're going there because stuff is finally broke down, which I guess is because it's old, but it's not, it's not the age as age. That's the problem. It's that it's that stuff has finally been worn down from proper use over the course of decades and decades and decades and decades. Um, Whereas some of the newer homes that we'll go to that have been, uh, that are less than 10, sometimes, sometimes even less than a year old uh, are built. Like, like I said, absolute garbage and the materials that they used are either used improperly or, you know, they had, they had people who clearly had never actually plumbed before. They just are like, Oh, I can just put this pipe in this fitting and glue it together and it doesn't leak. And so I, I'm a plumber. <laughs> it's like, well, it's not, no, not really. Uh, it's not, that's not exactly how this goes. Um, you do put pipe in fittings, but there's a lot more to plumbing than just the pipe in the fittings. Uh, configuration also plays a role in this and you know the uh, people uh, sometimes you'll get laborers construction workers who will pour like the grout that they didn't use into a drain or their paint or so or like cement i mean it's wild the stuff that i've seen in in drains and it's like i I guess they thought it was going to be fine like it was just going to like wash away and but no, like the first person that moves into the house, they just moved in. Like it's their first week or even their first couple of days in the home. And they're already having a whole home backup. And it's like, why is all of my, why are all of my drains backing up? And then you do some investigation and discover, oh, 
there's what appears to be half a bag of concrete that was poured into this drain. Um, oh no. And so then they have oh. to jackhammer the slab and have that section of drain cut out and have it replaced and then pour the, the slab back and, you know, float a concrete patch and then either redo the hardwood or redo the tile or whatever. Oh, it's just like, no, you don't, you don't really encounter that in homes that are 70, 80, a hundred years old. They were built well, they were built to last and you're only there because they, because they lasted as long as they did. Not because it's in, it's in, you're there uh, in spite of the building quality, not because of the building quality. You know what I mean? Right. Yeah. So there, there's something to all the old guys um, complaining about all these young dudes and they're not doing things properly. Yeah, there really is. And, you know, like I, I'm, I'm not, uh, I'm not one who's obsessed with certification and, and licensing. Like uh, I think that it, it can be good, but it also can be very, very bad. But I think that mastery has more to do with, a community of practitioners of the trade recognizing that you live up to their ideal of the trade that you share in common. And so when the old, when the old guard, you know, say like, we, we think that this is the best way to do this. Um, I think that the young guys have to take that seriously. They, I mean, maybe not, right? Like maybe in an individual application, the old way isn't necessarily the best way and that's fine. But on the whole, I think that a lot of the, a lot of the wisdom that these old guys, that these old heads have uh, is, is good. I mean, that's like, like that's what tradition is, right? Um, GK Chesterton, he has this idea of the democracy of the dead. Tradition is the democracy of the dead. It's the it's the 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 folks that have gone before us. They cast their vote on what was good, and that as tradition. And so I think if we, C.S. Lewis also talked about a similar idea. He called it chronological snobbery. Um, that <laughs> that what is what is new is de facto good. Um, when in fact, what's new might not be good. And especially if what's new doesn't, isn't kind of birthed forth from what came before. Uh, in other that's, words, that sort of, that also speaks, uh, pardon me, but that, that no. speaks to the, um, the notion of the point of diminishing returns, mm -hmm. right? Like new technologies, like if you're constantly reinventing the wheel, I mean, you can sort of nibble around the edges and make some minor improvements here and there but there's some stuff that just is like, this is it. This is as good as it's going to get. Just keep doing it this way. It works. Mm -hmm. You don't have to fix it. Right. right. And, a, and a lot of newer technology and newer development is just people trying to like, I don't know if it's ego or they're just trying to make a job for themselves by trying to reinvent the wheel constantly. So there's something to what like Chesterton and Lewis are saying. Yeah. Yeah. And like, I, I, uh, man, I listened to a conversation recently. I can't remember who, who it was with, I don't know, it was probably Crawford, but um, whoever it was said that um, innovation, innovation is really and must be birthed forth from tradition. It's like it, it, innovation isn't possible without what comes before at a certain level, which, you know, I think there are certain innovators that would be happy to, to admit that. And then I think that there's a large people kind of the ego the people weighted with their own ego who you mentioned a second ago that would have a hard time accepting that. Like they want to be 
mavericks. You know, they want to be people who are charting their own course and taking their own path and making something new. But it's like, it's debatable whether that new thing is going to be any good. Uh, because the, the, the reason that tradition exists as it is, is because it's, it's helped us flourish and like times change. Right. And so like, I'm not saying that tradition, it, it like has to remain untouched, but I think that it has to be duly considered and any innovation has to be contextualized within that, that body of tradition in order to make sure that it aligns with, I don't know, all, all the good that that tradition embodied um and so yeah so there's there's technologies like bringing this back to plumbing there are technologies and tools that come into existence by manufacturers that often when when they get marketed and purchased by you know early adopters of of these new technologies these plumbers will take a thing try a thing discover that actually it's not great. Like this new tool isn't really helpful. I can do the same thing with either less effort or with my already existing set of tools. And I think it's because a lot of tool manufacturing, a lot of new technologies come into existence, not from people that have been in the field, but from people that are sitting in a room thinking, huh, how could we, how can we make a technology that's going to do this thing? It's like, well, People are already doing that thing, not with that technology, but they already, they already get it done. Um, and I don't know, there's something, there's something in the, uh, this top down, I mean, going back to what we said earlier about autonomous vehicles, like there, there's this top down. That's just what's to, driving like, it. It's, it, it's, it's, it's a top down project. It's, it's people who are trying to fix a problem that most other people don't view as a problem. Yeah, they they frame it in in terms of problem, like oh, we have this issue, and people are like, I don't know, is it an issue? <laughs> right. Well, <laughs> the, the way they do this with autonomous vehicles, and I mentioned this in my latest Substack, was that like, you know, I referenced this article from a website called Jalopnik, who sort of they're like a car guy website, and they went through National Highway Traffic Safety Administration studies, and it showed that like. You know, Americans drive something like in the neighborhood of two and a half trillion miles every year, and you have to go four decimal places past 99.9 to when you start getting into incidents like per mile driven, right? Mm. So in order to justify, there's this narrative that like autonomous vehicles are going to be perfect. They're not going to be tired. They're not going to drive drunk. Like, okay, but most people don't do that already. Right. Yes, you you have your edge cases where people break the law or they feel pressure to drive when they're tired or whatever. You know, humans are fallible. That's true. But statistically speaking, autonomous vehicles have to achieve 99.5 like decimal points of nines past the existing safety factor already provided by human drivers. Mm. Right. But people yeah. like to focus on the exception, right? And so yeah. you get these people that like, you know, that own Waymo and Cruise, and they know that they have to try and sell a technology to people that don't necessarily want it. So they have to scare you with, with the with the safety aspect of it because that's how everybody gets scared about everything. They like tap into like primal fears. Yeah. Yeah. And uh even 
I don't know. This touch, this touches on a principle that, that we talk about at work. Like when, when we are in a person's home, you know, diagnosing and then proposing solutions over, over time, what ends up happening is technicians will become, I guess, scared of the problem customer, which is like maybe 1% of the customers that you ever run into are a quote unquote problem customer. And so they, but they completely, they exist in a home as if their customer is one of the 1% as opposed to existing in a home as if their customer was one of the 99%, which are largely unproblematic, absolutely delightful, love being there, right? Um, they're, total, they're totally great, normal people, um, but, the, but the technician will be so concerned that this is one of the 1% that they adjust the like their language, their body language, their interpersonal skills, like everything is adjusted uh, set and prepared for a quote unquote problem customer. And it's like, you, you can't do that because if you're treating your non-problematic customers, like problem customers, you're kind of gen you're going to make them into a problem customer. They're going to, they're going to sense that you're uncomfortable with them. Um, the, the rules of engagement that you are operating according to is going to transform them into what you don't want them to be. I, I uh, have to, I have to cop. I have to admit guilt to having that frame of mind myself. Um, I, I came off the road. I don't say off the road, but I like transitioned to a local job and I was delivering propane. But one of the sort of things I have to do while delivering propane is occasionally I also have to be a service tech. Mm. You know, someone's, so, someone ran out. I have to get their pilot like going for them again or figure out why their furnace isn't working for them. And I like triage. If it's not the propane supply, then call these guys, right? Mm-hmm. And I would always have to go into people's homes. And after many years on the road doing OTR stuff, being left to my own devices, I I kind of resented that part of my job. That was the one thing I hated about it. Like I didn't mind delivering propane, simple, basic job home every night. I mean, long hours in the winter, but it, d- it didn't bother me. It was the going in people's houses. Mm-hmm. And it's because I had the same mentality that you're describing about these guys being afraid of the 1% of bad customers. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And in the context of servicing, you know, businesses or people, it, it's not great, right? Like there, there, there's verifiable data on, on the way that that uh, affects the in-home or the, the customer business interaction. And it also doesn't work at the level of, of lawmaking. You know, like we, we can't, we can't make laws for the, the marginal exceptions. Um, we, we have to make laws based on, the way that 99.99999% of people are, are driving on the road. Uh, and um, not that, you know, like the, not that the, the drunk driving death or, or injury or whatever, like, isn't, isn't traumatic and, and bad because like, obviously it is, but it's just that, you know, we can't, we just can't, it's the, the safetyism idea, right? Like we can't, um, there's no way of mitigating all negative contingencies. And, and part of part of being a human and part of being in the world is existing in this tension of all the possible contingen- contingencies and having the agency to be able to uh, enact what is good for human flourishing. And 
when we completely remove that possibility for 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 that choice uh we don't not only do we make bad policies that it, as it turns out can't even accomplish what they say they're going to accomplish yeah, but that's right. also uh we remove the possibility of human flourishing <laughs> well um, i mean it's, it's not just human flourishing like who wants to live in a society where risk equals zero right like sure. r- r- risk equals zero implies a whole lot of controls and mechanisms that are actually going to make your life worse. So yeah, I'm not, I'm not terribly interested in that. Nathan, we've gone a little over an hour and a half here. Um, Before we wrap up, I want to talk about you and I's favorite writer, Matthew Crawford. Okay. <laughs> Twist my arm, why don't you? Because we are we we are nerds and fanboys and big fans of his, and kind of part of the reason I think we all got together. Um, so how how you and I met once? We went to this uh, Front Porch Republic conference in Madison uh, a couple months ago, and I was invited there again by Comrade Brandon. Uh, g'day, Brandon. And Brandon and I bumped into each other on Twitter, both being Crawford fanboys. So like. Matthew Crawford is the sort of sun around which uh, many of us orbit. So he's the tie that binds. The tie that binds. Yeah. So um, tell me, uh, tell me about your favorite works of uh, Mr. Crawford. Well, his uh, his Substack is incredible. It's called Arcadelia, and it's A R C H E D E L I A, and it is. Um, it's funny because I, I think of him and talk about him mostly as a philosopher of work, um, thinking about sort of our, our relationship with material reality and the inter- our interior worlds and exterior worlds and our bodies that mediate the two. And, and he does talk about that and write about that, but that's kind of only like one part of his larger project. That's not, that's not the only thing that he talks and writes about. And I think his Substack is a really good, um, a really good example of that, uh, that he, he does wander into other ideas and things that all I think center on the development of on not development of, but human agency, the things that make for it and detract from it. I think that's his, his big project is human agency. And, um, so his Substack is great. Uh, shop class as soul craft was the book that made him famous. And, um, an incredible text, one that I will, I, I've read a couple times now and will likely read at least a dozen more times before I die, Lord willing. Um, so that that's really good. Although that does focus primarily on work in the way that we've kind of been thinking about it and talking about it together. Probably, although I hate to admit this, but probably his more important work uh, his that, that kind of broadens his scope a little bit is the world beyond your head, uh, becoming a human in, in an age of distraction. Uh, that that one is easily, I think, probably the most important book in his corpus. Uh, as much as I like shop uh, shop class, and as much as you like why we drive, I think that the, that those two kind of um, narrow their gaze a little bit on certain things but the world beyond your head really is this kind of uh, expansive text on the the ways in which we turn into ourselves and the means by which that inward turn happens and whether that's good or bad 
and the people that benefit from it. So he kind of has this political vision and like political, not, not merely in the sense of like political parties, but like polis, like the city, like pot, like po political. Um, it, it's about people living with other people in the context of this, this social fabric, this city, these cities that we live in. And, um, and the way that we share space, he talks about, he proposes the idea of an attentional commons. Um, you know, like there, there are certain things that we, that we engage in, let's say that like impinge on the people that are around us. And, and our attention is one of those things, the ceaseless call of advertising and the personal ramifications of that, but then also the kind of society that that creates around us and on and on and on. So anyway, the world beyond your head, I think, is probably one of one of the finest books uh, that you could purchase from anywhere at this moment. Um, it's, Many it's such a... cases. Um, you're you're not the only person to say that. Uh, my buddy Charles, I think, also mentioned that the world beyond your head was his best book. Mm. I think I think Brandon uh, said something similar. Mm. Um, it's it's it seems uh, uh, quite a few people think that's quite an important work. I haven't got to it yet. I mean, cause I probably, because I read why we drive like three times cause I wanted to make sure I didn't miss anything. Uh, so I, I'm going to have to, I'm gonna have to work backwards. Um, and, and yeah, I, I really enjoy his, his sub stack as well. I love, I like his sort of the, the word he came up with Arcadelia, you know, rule revealing, like what's going on with the people who rule over us. Mm. And I would submit to anyone listening to me or our discussion here, that if you're a politics junkie and you're trying to figure out what in the hell is going on today, you should be reading Arcadelia. Much to learn, much to see from uh, Matthew Crawford's observations. Yeah, totally. He also has a, a, on his personal website, so he's got a Substack. But before he was on Substack, he had, um, I, I, guess it's, I guess it's just like MatthewCrawford.com or something. I don't know. How, however, yeah, it is MatthewBCrawford.com. And uh, he has links to uh, not only his books, but he's got a, a, a across the options, the bar at the top, he's got shorter writings. And so he's got links to a number of his other articles and um, even book reviews. Uh, I kind of discovered this actually just last week that he's got, there's um, a link on there under book reviews to his six favorite books in the publication, the week. And like Matthew Crawford's six favorite books. And I was like, huh, maybe I would be interested in reading the books that my favorite philosopher also think it are important. Like if they're his favorite and they've been formative for him, then maybe that would be good for me to go through it. Some tell point. us, tell us what those six books are. I, yes. I can guess, but I haven't actually read this list. So go ahead. Well, if you could guess you're a smarter man than me, uh, the sovereignty of good by Iris Murdoch is one uh the present age by soren kierkegaard the tacit dimension by michael i don't know how to pronounce his last name polony polony oh polony polony yeah Polanyi? yeah I, I i've heard of that I, I i recall crawford referencing that in other places yeah i've heard him bring bring him up too um and so that that's in there uh the early stories 1953 to 1975 by john updike the Weariness of the Self by, uh, Al I think it's Alan Ehrenberg. 
um, or Elaine Ehrenberg, one or the other. But uh, this one he mentions um, in a recent conversation with somebody. I can't remember who exactly, but I think he references this work in The World Beyond Your Head as well, um, talking about how um, in a culture of performance, how depression has become the primary psychic affliction instead of guilt in, in times past, it was guilt, but now it's depression. Um, so that that's an interesting one. And then addiction by design by Natasha Dow Shul, I think Shul or Shaw. Um, also one that he references in the world beyond your head, because she does the case studies on machine gambling and Vegas and sort of the dark underbelly of the technologies that are at play in Las Vegas and, and what happens there. So yeah, those are the six right there. And you can find those on his website. He's got a link to it. MatthewBCrawford.com at shorter writings uh, at the bottom of that page. There's a link to the week and it's six favorite books by Matthew Crawford. So, right. Um, no, enough about Crawford. What are your six favorite books? Oh, if that's Lord. even possible. Um, I think, Oh gosh, this is going to be maybe a broad, uh, well, maybe not that broad. I think it's going to center on work and prayer as most of my writing and thought does. Um, so I would say these two books by Crawford are, are definitely up there. Shop classes, soul craft and the world beyond your head. Those have been very formative for me. Um, the Consolation of Philosophy by a writer named Boethius. He was a medieval philosopher and just talks about philosophy as the philo, phileo is a Greek word for love and sophos is wisdom. So philosophy is the love of wisdom. That's literally what it translates to. Yeah. Um, you so mentioned he, that. So we had our, we had our faded discussion that was, um, Someone was casting spells on our audio quality and my ability to speak. Um, <laughs> but during that discussion, you brought up Boethius, yep. who I'd sort of heard of, but like, you know, uh, time is short and I can't read that often. Um, I went and looked up the Constellation of Philosophy and downloaded a podcast uh, with these guys discussing it. Something you failed to mention in our last discussion was that the Constellation of Philosophy was written while Boethius was preparing to be executed. Yeah. Yeah. I did forget to, to yep. That's, that's a, my bad. <laughs> my bad. So the, the, this work, this, this, this work that like everybody in their dog references as this like brilliant, uh, this, this, this brilliant um, exhortation for us to study and love wisdom and know all these things, you know, it's pretty seriously contextualized by the fact the guy wrote it while he was awaiting his own death. Yeah, get getting his neck ready for the axe. Yeah, craziness. Yeah. yeah, so it's a good one. It's a banger. That one, Constellation of Philosophy. That would be uh, a third one on my list. Um, mm, mm, mm. gosh, I'd have to. I'd have to. There, another another one that was important for me uh, on a a more I guess religious the the religious side of things would be um it's called Surprised by Hope written by N.T. Wright, um, Surprised by Hope, kind of hit me at a time in my faith journey where I was questioning a lot of the things that I had grown up with, like the exact version of Christianity that I had grown up in. 
and some of the assumptions and theological categories that I had at the time that were um, no longer helping me kind of, as we've discussed, uh, it was, it was not, I was, didn't feel like I was progressing as a, as a person or as a Christian. And I had a bunch of questions that my tradition didn't even have the framework to ask, let alone answer. And when I discovered this book by N.T. Wright, it kind of blew, it blew my mind, dude. Like it just, it like blew all these categories apart. Not, it didn't obliterate them, but it just like, fit them into a larger framework that allowed me, allowed me to ask the questions and then to, and then to find answers. Um, so that, that was a really important work for me. Um, and then just in terms of like, like enjoyability, uh, things that I enjoy reading. I remember, um, the, I, I love the, the Tolkien legendarium. I love, uh, the, Lord of the Rings trilogy, the Hobbit, the Silmarillion, um, that, that I don't get to it often, but when I do get to read them, I really, really enjoy them. And then, I don't know. I think that kind of rounds look, out the list for me. I'm looking forward to my daughters getting old enough that they'll sort of understand the Hobbit. And I'm going to make a point. I mean, I read to my kids every night, my wife and I put our children to bed and we read to them. And, you know, my uh, eldest daughter Vivi who will be six in May mm. um, she's beginning to learn how to read so she's got her alphabet down and she sort of understands words now and she's really into it but when her and her sister are a little bit older you know maybe when Vivi's eight and Georgia's six or something like that I'm gonna I'm gonna make a make a project of reading them The Hobbit as their like nighttime book story yeah it's a it's a beautiful it's a beautiful story it's it's very i mean as as much as it's hobbit um it is very human like it just it it really is this beautiful vision of what makes life good um you know there's that oft quoted line from it about if we if we just uh man i don't want to butcher it but i know i'm about to uh if we valued um good food and good drink and good friends uh more than gold or something like that then life would be happier something along those lines it it was basically that but like golly like that that really is that really is what what we need and um and what we ultimately all that we're longing for is is summed up in that i think um i need to read it again at some point and that, yeah. that's the other thing too is you come back to some of these texts and after not having read them for a long time and you know your your worldview changes or develops maybe and you see things in them that you didn't see the first or even second or third time. Oh, dude, I read so many books when I was a kid that I was like not prepared for. And I thought I was just being smart by reading them mm -hmm. and like, they're all gone. I have to reread them. And that Lord of the Rings is one. I, I read Lord of the Rings like three or four times because it was so good, but that was like between 14 and 23, you know, um, that's, 21 years ago, man, I need to yeah. update my Tolkien, I think. Probably so. And maybe I'll just end on saying this. That reminds me of um, Jesus to his disciples at one point said, there, there are many things that I would like to say to you, but you can't hear them. <laughs> like there, there are many things that I would like to say to you. The many things that I could say could reveal in this moment but you are, you are not even, you don't even have the capacity to receive them. 
And I think that with good literature, that is very much the case is that we read them when we're young because we think it's going to make us smart and then, but we're not ready. We can't hear it. And so then you come back to it later with some maturity, with, uh, with a little bit of virtue in our souls, maybe. And all of a sudden we're, we're ready to hear it, see and hear and receive the lessons that are actually woven into, into the text. And uh, good literature has that quality of, of being able to do that for a person over and over and over again. So yeah, here's to the Hobbit. Let's, let's, uh, let's get into it. Yeah. And here's, you know, you mentioned um, the quote that if we all enjoyed good food and good drink and good company, uh, we are recording this on Saturday, December 16th, and it's going to be Christmas in nine days. Mm. And uh, I know that you and I and everybody else listening to this, hopefully, maybe with the exception of a few truckers that might get caught out on the road, uh, are going to enjoy some holiday feasting, uh, celebration of the birth of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Mm. And uh, lots of uh, good drink and good food with the fam. Uh, we have a, a winter solstice party at my in-laws on the 21st. And then I'm going to my dad's uh, the day after Christmas back in Canada. And then we have friends coming to visit us that week following. And then there'll be New Year's. And, you know, we got a whole bunch of good enjoyment um, based, cozy and wholesome tidings ahead for both myself and hopefully for you and everyone else. Absolutely. I love it. Yeah. Well, safe journeys, safe travels. Hope it is as warm and cozy as, uh, as we all would hope for it to be. And, uh, to you and all of your listeners, Merry Christmas. Yeah, man. Merry Christmas, Nathan. Um, I really appreciate your time and your wonderful thoughts. And I hope you keep writing. You got something going on there, sir. Thank you, brother. Yeah. I'll, uh, I'll keep at it. I appreciate the encouragement. All right. All right. Well, uh, that said, all right, everybody, uh, way of the road. <laughs>